Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPAGAN. My name is Jen Lee, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And my name is Tamara Hajat, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. You know, Tamara, when we first created Bowel Sounds, we wanted this podcast to be a place in the pediatric GI community to have difficult conversations to really help us become better doctors, better healthcare providers, and provide the best care for our patients. Absolutely, Jen. Today's episode is one of our important episodes. April is National Minority Health Month and is also National Donate Life Month. And in the light of the recent events that has been affecting the Black communities, the Asian communities, and a lot of minorities, we feel that it is very critical for all of us as healthcare providers to recognize the importance of having cultural competency in medicine and the effect that that can have on minorities' health and the community. Dr. Udeme Ikang is a transplant hepatologist, an active researcher, and an associate professor of pediatrics at Georgetown University. She was nominated by the Diversity Special Interest Group to be our guest for this very special episode. On to the show. On to the show. Welcome, Dr. E. Kong, to our special episode of Bow Sounds. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, welcome. And you are actually nominated to be our guest to celebrate National Minority Health Month. And the theme this year is hashtag vaccine ready. We also are going to touch a little bit about disparities in transplant hepatology. So just to start off, can you tell us how you developed your career in hepatology and how you got where you are today? Well, thanks to the committee that nominated me to do this. I appreciate that very much. I think my interest in hepatology started uh, when I was a PEDS resident at Birmingham Children's in the UK. And um, I was fortunate to work under the tutelage of Professor Deji Kelly and with her team. And so that spurred my interest in hepatology and transplant hepatology. This interest continued when I moved over to the U.S., and um, I was, I, I did my PhDI fellowship at Columbia, but I was then fortunate to continue um, my hepatology training with Professor Peter Whittington and, and um, Estella Alonso and the team there. And so I think I've been fortunate because my exposure to these folks who are leaders in our field really helped shape my career development. I, I was fortunate really to have trained with them um, and had them at least show some interest in me as well. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> um, moving on to our topic a little bit. So, you know, racial disparities in outcomes for liver disease have been a topic of conversation for the past 20 years. So there was this paper in 2001 that was published that showed African-American children underwent primary therapeutic intervention for biliary atresia at an older age than in white children and had less favorable outcomes. And so where are we now in terms of portoenterostomy for biliary atresia related to race? So um, as you've alluded to in, in your opening, the outcomes um, 
following a hepatoporinerostomy uh, influenced by the time of the diagnosis and performance of that hepatoporinerostomy. As close as 2018, there's been this study, it's a single center study by the team at Baylor. And um, they looked in the last few years at their um, outcomes of their patients who underwent uh, hepatoporinerostomy after diagnosis of biliary atresia. And what they found was that the time from birth to referral to a specialist was associated with race and ethnicity. Um, Non-Hispanic white children had um, a shorter time from birth to referral than Hispanics and non-Hispanic Black or African-American children. And so the children who get a hepatoporinerostomy before 30 to 45 days of life tend to have a better outcome in terms of the need or delaying liver transplantation. And so sadly, it seems as if we've still got quite a lot of work to do in this area. And I think one of the areas that we look at in terms of trying to impact the general pediatric field is really the issue of fractionating serum bilirubins, because then that really truly avoids missing some of these patients who probably could have been caught earlier on. And so that's, at least that's an area that we think we can impact. Can you talk a little bit about disparities related to transplantation and organ donation? So Office of Minority Studies, I think from HHS, the Health and Human Services has some data on it. So uh, when you look at African-Americans in terms of the wait list for transplantation, we make up about probably, I don't know, 28 or so percent of patients. When you look at the fraction of African-Americans that make up the donor population, we're probably about 12 and a half or so percent. And even if you look specifically at living donation, African-Americans make up just 8% of living donors, So, uh, whereas whites make up 71% of living donors. So I think there's a lot of work that we need to do as a community in terms of educating a community on um, importance of donation. Even having a conversation, obviously, about organ donation with, with one's family is obviously not a very comfortable conversation to have. Trying to phrase this sort of as a deceased person impacting lives positively, even in their death, you know, it's kind of like a way that one can look at it. But I think there's, there's a lot of education that we need to do to try and improve donation rates, both whether deceased donors, as well as living donation in our community. So um, Congratulations on your recent publication on graft survival analysis. Can you comment a little bit about post-transplant outcomes as far as racial disparities? So we did not look at um, race and ethnicity in um, our analysis of the UNOS database, but what's published out there, certainly a lot more in adults than in pediatrics. And so there is this publication and analysis of the UNOS database, I think between 2005 and 2016, I want to say. And essentially, what it found was when you look at um, patients, adults waiting for liver transplants in the US, African Americans um, had a lower probability of receiving a liver transplant as well as an increased probability of death after liver transplant. That was a database analysis looking at the UNOS database. And so in that particular study, the authors weren't able to tease out contributors to um, what they had found, but they are 
um, other publications that have looked at this and, you know, also seen um, increased post-transplant outcome death. And some of the things that have been postulated, uh, even when you've corrected for um, a confounder, like the different disease etiologies, there's still this increased risk of death. And so I think it's it's important that we look to understanding biological or social economic factors that could be contributing to this um, poor post-transplant outcome in African-Americans. Just shifting topics right now. The past year has been difficult on everybody out there with the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us the impact of COVID-19 on patients who already have had transplants or on the list of the transplants? There have been differences with different transplant centers. I can speak for our center. During the height of the pandemic, we paused on our living donor, liver and kidney programs, as well as intestinal transplant and multivisceral transplant programs. But we carried on with our deceased donor, kidney and liver programs. Generally, the organ procurement organization or the OPO would call us with an offer or from a, a COVID negative patient. And typically the OPO is the OPO does actually the nucleic acid testing for COVID in, in, in the don in the potential donor. That typically would be done between, I don't know, 24, 48 hours. And as soon as we get that call, we have a system that we've set up in our center where home health company goes immediately into the recipient's home to obtain a nasopharyngeal sample, which is brought over to our lab where, and that's done STAT. Um, so that way we are able to ascertain that both the donor and the recipient are COVID negative and it's safe to go along with, with a transplant. And in the last few months, we took the pause off our living donor program and we restarted um, our living donor program again, as well as our um, intestinal uh, multivisceral program. And um, essentially for living donors, what we do is the living donor gets tested twice so a week before transplant and then the day before transplant and the recipient is also done the day before transplant. Again, trying to maintain, to be certain that the both the donor and the recipient are COVID negative. And so far, I would say um, in the last um, 15 months, we or is it 14 months now from COVID or 13 months, we've not had any problems with um, COVID and we've done quite a substantial number of transplants throughout the time. But we had less to pick up from, I think, because we didn't pause all aspects of our program. And that's really also because the when you look at the uh, community transmission rates that were um, in the DC area, this was clearly not as high as in other communities. So um, we were able to continue without needing to pause all aspects of it. For patients who have already received a solid organ transplantation, mm. are they at risk for higher or more severe COVID-19 infection? So, I mean, the data hasn't shown us that, but I think also there's still a lot we do not know about COVID. And so we still preach on caution with all those patients. But so far, I would say, um, even from what's published and our own um, center experience, we've had patients who've had COVID 
but we've not lost anyone from COVID. And I don't think the, the literature does not suggest that in terms of solid organ, tra- solid organ transplant recipients. But I still think there's still a lot that we do not know, and we still need to be somewhat cautious um, about our pediatric solid organ transplant recipients. Do you place those patients on any special precautions as far as going to school, or are they still allowed to follow with the rest of their community? We do know now more than we did know in March of 2020, but I think that um, as we learn every day, something new comes up with COVID. And so we as a center took up that policy of um, having our kids attend virtual school and rather than in-person classes. Um, But that's the center-specific decision that we took. So what I'm hearing is that if any of our listeners or any of our trainees are taking care of transplanted patients, really it's a center by center specific recommendation, not necessarily from a national society. Well, I think the what the National Society also says is you have to look at what the um, community transmission rates are in the community that the center is in. And so it, it is important to um uh, go back to your center to get advice from the center because basically the the community transmission rate is very very different in different areas and at different times as well you know so that's that's very important with the covid vaccine becoming more common and available for the patients who are listed for liver transplant um, what are your recommendations on uh, getting the covid vaccine first of all the only vaccine that's been approved in any pediatric population is really the Pfizer vaccine for kids who are 16 and over right and so with that we've we've not been um, vaccinating anyone who's less than 16 for our patients who are 16 or over we have been recommending vaccinations and i think this is also what listed patients and post transplant patients the recommendation from the different uh, different societies in terms of our post transplant patients for instance the benefit from the vaccine um probably overweighs any theoretical unknown risk from the vaccine itself. And so it's typically it would be recommended. And even for patients who are listed, it's also recommended um, you try and get at least two weeks before the transplant. But again, I hasten to add that only vaccine that has been approved by the FDA is really the Pfizer for anyone 16 and above. And so I think in a pediatric hepatology population of patients, there are not many patients who are going to be 16 and above. So the majority of our patients are not vaccinated at this point in time. And even in the post-transplant setting as well, the majority are going to be less than 16. So I think the majority of our patients are not vaccinated. We've in fact just started trying to collate our list of patients who are um, above 16 post-transplant and even pre-transplant to, to um, try and um, offer up vaccination to those families, um, to those families. And again, it would just be of the Pfizer vaccine because that's the only th- one that's been approved. So you encourage uh, pre and post-transplant patients above 16 to get the Pfizer vaccine? That, that is the only vaccine that's been approved above 16. What about their parents? Um, Would you encourage the family as well to get the vaccine as a protective method for the child that is listed or post-transplant? 
So we are encouraging similar to what the CDC is doing. So we're going by the CDC guidelines also. So expanding past the transplant population, um, when it comes to the vaccination of our general population, it seems that we are already starting to see some disparities in who is getting the vaccine. Would you mind providing some comment on that? So I, I think everybody talks about vaccine hesitancy, but I think really, truly, it goes beyond just hesitancy because there are also a lot of folks who are interested in the minority population in getting the vaccine, but access to it has been an issue. I know I was on the computer for like, um, I don't know how many hours trying to sign my mother up for vaccine. And so for yes, there is genuine hesitancy and, you know, there are reasons for this and legitimate reasons for it as well. Um, but I do think there's also an issue with access to vaccinations. And so um, trying to make this um, easily accessible, I think, to minority populations, um, especially those who, who may live in like rural areas, um, I think is, is one thing to look at. And, and, you know, I think the sign up process really, truly, you need to be computer literate with a lot of time on your hands to try and sign someone up for this. So I think that's something that just needs, not everyone's going to be that. Not everyone's going to have um, a family member who can do that. And, uh, you know, so I just think that, and that, that, that's not just limited to minorities. That's just anyone um, in terms of trying to look at ways within communities that you can actually provide the vaccine so people can easily get this in their community without trying to use vaccinefinder.org or whatever program is out there. One other way to look at things, especially when you're talking about um, hesitance, is also you want those who are tr the trusted members in that community to be the ones advocating for vaccinations. So I want to talk a little bit about cultural competency. I think We've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We now have the Stop Asian Hate movement that's currently going on. Can you describe what is cultural competency and what can be done to improve cultural competency in the medical field? Each and every one of us, we all have a individual beliefs about well-being and health, which are really a consequence of or reflected or a result of perhaps ethnicity, uh, race, you know, uh, education, uh, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, occupation. Uh, and essentially, cultural competency is providers as well as um, institutions recognizing these differences and um, factoring this into the way in which we provide healthcare to individuals as well as the way um, hospitals are structured. So for instance, um, some of this could be in areas of providing um, interpreter services uh, at, you know, at hospitals, re recruiting, retaining minority staff, trying to incorporate or having training of, of cultural awareness in institutions, trying to incorporate cultural specific focus or items when you're looking at health promotion, um, looking at actually providing linguistic competency 
that actually goes beyond just the clinical encounters. So for instance, it goes to like the front desk or the appointment desk, so the helplines, you know, looking at medical billing. And so these are some of these things I think that would need to be um, incorporated when we're looking at delivery of healthcare, essentially as providers as, as well as in as um, institutions or hospitals or organizations, I should say. You know, actually, I want to I want to expand on that a little bit yeah. because yeah. we are coming across in the beginning of April. There's going to be more sharing of electronic health information through patient portals, and I think your comment about you know having language appropriate educational materials is a really important one right now. I think you're absolutely right, but I think also one thing that we have to re- remember is. Speaking a language is not the same thing as being able to read it. Right. True. That's a factor. That's, yeah. But, uh, you know, by and large, at least make the effort to provide it, whatever educational material you may have in, in different languages. It's important to at least incorporate some of this into whatever health promotion materials that we, we have. Yeah. Right. And Simplifying kind of the medical terms right. and making sure the patient understands what what is really going on with them and what right. the plan is. You know, I mean like you know that's a that's another good point incorporating family members or community members in healthcare decision making as well is another area that uh one would think of maybe even expanding hours of that you provide service providing clinics in certain geographic areas that may be easily accessible to certain populations. These, these are ways you can think about improving cultural competence in healthcare, I think. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So Dr. E. Kong, what is the best advice you've received? Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me this because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't really I couldn't really think of what to say. <laughs> or yeah. any any good advice well, well, doesn't necessarily I, to be the best I, advice. I, I don't. I think uh, you know the mother is always right. Always listen to the mother of the patient, and you know, always listen to your nurses. that's absolutely right. Those are the yeah. two things I was told, and you know, and you know, I think they, I think they're they're right. Always they know their just, child best. Yeah, I think it's best to just kind of step back and absolutely. reevaluate things again. Absolutely. Uh, we had a really great discussion, Dr. E. Kong. We talked a little bit about hepatology and some of the racial disparities for outcomes. We've talked a little bit about the COVID vaccine and how COVID has affected our transplant population. As we're about to sign off, do you have any last <laughs> words for our no, listeners? No. You hit upon pertinent things. I mean, April, I think, is also organ donation month as well. So I think there's still a lot of work that um, we as minority physicians in organ transplantation need to do in terms of um, encouraging organ donation um, in our population, because I think um, we're lagging behind with that. But I mean, I understand the concerns that folks would have regarding this. And, you know, as I said, it's not totally off base, but um, I do think there are things that um, we minority physicians in in organ transplantation need to speak up about and um, talk within our community to try and uh, enlighten people. Yeah, I can can tell you it's not an easy topic. Yeah. Uh, For me, I went and renewed my driver's license and they asked me if I want to be an organ donor. 
And that was scary to me because right. being an organ donor, you know that it's the end of your life and you're giving a new life to somebody else. But thinking about it in that way, I understand how it's scary for people not in the medical field. It was scary to me, but yeah, I, I, I'm an I, organ donor. <laughs> yeah, I think oh, good for you. Good. <laughs> I think you have some states that opt in. So in other words, you have to physically opt out. It's assumed that you will be a donor until you opt out of it. And that's um, one strategy that some states have used. But I think some of the concerns also are on if I'm an organ donor, so does that mean that if I become ill, then folks don't really try mm -hmm. to save me and it's more, well, this person is going to be an organ donor and so let's just go with that, you know. And okay. so obviously that's something that needs to be addressed with our community, um, because I think that's one right. of the major concerns that I sign up to be a donor and then folks see that I'm a donor and then, you know, everybody's hands are okay, so that's fine. We can't do more. Right. And, and that's know. not true, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's yeah. not true. Yeah. Transplant just, it changes people's lives. Absolutely. And, it um, does. It, can, it makes a really big impact. And I think that's where the focus of talking about donations should be on how a deceased individual impacts other lives positively, even in their death. You know, um, I think that's a way to talk about that. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Thank you yeah. for having me. Well, Tamara, that was such a great episode. I'm so that glad was. Dr. Ekong, she was able to join us on such short notice to have this important conversation. Yeah, and I, I feel like I learned a lot about organ donation and liver transplant and, and liver transplant in this era of COVID. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at, at Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps some of the amazing things the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of the podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening to our very first all-female episode of Bow Sounds. Yay! Until, <laughs> Until next, next time! time. Bye for now. Bye for now.